Romans 8 and verse 28, where Paul writes, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. A very familiar passage of Scripture to you, I hope. One that you do well to commit to memory, if you haven't already. I want to call your attention in particular this morning to a question that Paul raises in verse 31 of Romans 8 from the section we've just read, where he asks this question, What shall we then say to these things? What shall we then say to these things? A rhetorical question is defined as a question to which no answer is required. The question is asked for dramatic effect. And I think that's what we have here in our text. What shall we then say to these things? It's a rhetorical question. And really, in a sense, there is no adequate answer to it when you consider all that has been spoken of by Paul. The Apostle Paul was very familiar with the use of rhetorical questions. We find a number of them in the verses we've just read from Romans 8. What shall we then say to these things? Verse 31. Who can be against us? Verse 31. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Verse 32. 
Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Verse 33. Who is he that condemneth? Verse 34. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Verse 35. And if you care to follow up on such a study, try entering a question mark in the search window of your Bible program and limit your search to the epistle to the Romans or to Paul's epistles in general, and you'll discover that raising rhetorical questions and then answering them is very much a part of Paul's style. But like I say, the question I want to call your attention to this morning is one that I think is particularly applicable to our time around the Lord's table. It's the question in verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? This is a question, like I say, for which there really is no answer, but that ought to affect us by leading us, you could say, to stand in awe of Christ and stand in awe of the gospel of Christ. That's really the effect. And you remember I said a rhetorical question is designed for effect. Well, here's the effect to lead you to stand in reverential awe in the presence of Christ at the thought of who Christ is and the gospel of Christ. And that's really what the Lord's table is designed for. Be still and know that I am God. The Lord says to us through the psalmist in Psalm 46 and verse 10, And I fear that there isn't near enough of this kind of stillness in our Christian lives these days. We live in a culture, don't we, that places a lot of demands upon us. People, generally speaking, are pressed for time. And this is perhaps even more true for Christians who believe in a work ethic and who aim for God's glory in all that they do. Yet I'm afraid that there are many more Marthas than there are Marys among Christians today. You'll recall that Martha was the one full of care and troubled about many things, while Mary was the one who sat at the feet of Christ, And you remember what Christ said about Mary. She was engaged in the one thing needful. Oh, how tempted we are time and again, really on a daily basis, to uh, switch that around. Oh, Martha was engaged in the one thing needful. All the things about the house that needed to be tended to, all the activities that pressed her, those were the needful things. Well, not according to Christ. No, Mary was engaged in what Christ himself identified as that one thing needful. The Lord's day is given to us to assist us in that one thing needful. And the Lord's table assists us in doing the one thing needful, which is sitting at the feet of Christ. And the more a Christian fails to avail himself of the opportunity to be still and behold his Savior, the more the cares of this world will strangle him and rob him of his peace 
and his joy. Certainly the foot of the cross is a proper place for the believer to be still and behold Christ, our Lord and our God. Oh, may we be moved today with wonder and awe and humble praise and thanksgiving as we contemplate the person and work of Christ and as we see with the eyes of faith the things that take us beyond the physical side of these communion elements. Let's look closer then at the question raised in verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? And the first thing we have to consider in our analysis of this question is another question, which is simply this. What things? What things is Paul talking about here? What shall we then say to these things. Now, some commentators suggest that the these things in our text make reference to the verses that immediately precede, while others suggest that Paul has in mind all the blessings of salvation that he has covered up to this point in this entire epistle to the Romans. If he has the blessings of the entire epistle in view, then this would include such things as these our justification freely by his grace. Chapter 3, verse 24. What shall we say to that? Oh, stand in awe of it, believer. We are justified freely by his grace. The fact that we are redeemed, purchased to God by the blood of the Lamb, also in chapter 3 and verse 24. And this is the basis of our justification redemption. These things would also include the glorious truth that Christ is the propitiation for our sins, or in other words, he bore the wrath of God that justice demanded for sinners. Chapter 3 and verse 25, and that he has saved us without any reference to our obedience to his law. Oh, how grateful we can be for that, because at our best we don't measure up to the standard of his law, and we've transgressed it countless times. Thank God that the, these things that are being referenced here don't make any reference to our success or our failures with regard to law obedience or disobedience. These things would also have to include the blessings that David describes. Paul refers to Abraham and David in chapter 4, citing the words of David from Psalm 32, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Indeed, what will we say to such blessings as those? Our iniquities are forgiven, removed from us as far as the east is from the west. They are not charged or imputed to us because they've been imputed to someone else in our place, even to Christ himself. But the blessings of these things also take into account 
the other side of the coin, so to speak. For not only are our sins not imputed to us, as they would have been apart from Christ, leaving us uh, under the condemnation that we deserve, but instead of sin being imputed to us, righteousness is imputed to us. Romans 4.11, And he received, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. In other words, righteousness is imputed to those that believe the gospel. And that's Christ's righteousness. And I would be careful to clarify that because there are those that interpret those verses in Romans as to suggest that the righteousness of the act of faith is what's imputed. No, not at all. It is the righteousness of Christ that's imputed to us. This is the righteousness that Christ earned for us by his righteous life and his atoning death. Every time you behold Christ in the gospel accounts, In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you should see him living in perfect obedience to his Father. And keep in mind when we think of these things in our text, we're thinking of the things that we have received simply by faith. What shall we say to the glorious truth that these things are the things received by faith and faith alone? Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That's in chapter 4 and verse 16. Moving into chapter 5 of Romans, we conclude that these things of our text includes the blessing of being reconciled to God through Christ. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's in chapter 5 and verse 10. We were indeed the enemies to God. That's the way we came into this world. That's how we were born, and that's what we demonstrated every time we sinned. Every time we sin, we say to God that we won't have him rule over us. We prefer to rule over ourselves, and that kind of thinking only shows that we are deceived, for we aren't really ruling over ourselves either. We rather were of our father, the devil. Ephesians 2 and verse 2, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." 
how we do well when it comes to thinking of these things of our text to remember what these blessings stand in contrast to. We who walk in the ways of the world and in the ways of the devil, we who were disobedient and lived by the lusts of our flesh, we who were by nature children deserving of wrath even as others, we have been reconciled to God. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's Romans 5, verses 7 to 10. We were reconciled. At the time when we were enemies, we were reconciled. Do you see the description of the man in that passage? We're described as sinners and enemies. We were at war with God, but instead of God conquering us by the power of his omnipotent and just anger and wrath, he conquered us by his love instead, a love that would subject his son to that wrath in our place. What shall we say then to these things? These things Continuing, you could say, include Christ as our covenant head in Romans chapter 5, where Christ is represented as the second Adam. The first Adam plunged the human race into sin and brought upon us all the sentence of death. The last Adam brings to us life as believers are viewed as joined to him. Romans 5 in verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And two verses later, Romans 5 and verse 19, For as by one man's disobedience, that one man being Adam now, as by Adam's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Christ, the second Adam. Oh, we could spend much more time tracing the these things of our text through Romans 6 and 7. But let's bring the matter closer to the immediate context of our text now. These things include being predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, chapter 8 and verse 29. They also include being effectually called and justified and glorified, chapter 8 and verse 30. Rather interesting to note, and I know Dr. Cairns used to make a point of this, that when you look at that verse and it makes reference to being called, justified, glorified, it seems like the process of sanctification is left out. 
and our glorification, which we look ahead to as something in the future, is viewed by God as good as done. We will be glorified. Now, all of these blessings, you could argue, are captured in a summary and somewhat comprehensive statement that Paul gives us in the words of our text. Notice the words, if God before us, if God before us, that little word if becomes a very important word to interpret correctly. It carries the literal meaning in this instance of meaning for as much as, for as much as God is for us. It's tempting on the surface of it to read it as a condition. If the condition is that God is for us, but I believe that Paul has something much more um, strong in view. Since God is for us, and all that Paul has said up to this point then, you could say, is designed to lead the reader to this conclusion, God is for us. God is for us. For as much as God is for us, since God is for us, oh, let these communion elements preach that message to you this morning. God is for you. His broken body and his shed blood say that to you. I know that you're tempted to doubt it at times, especially when the circumstances of life seem to suggest otherwise. But that's what makes this time around the Lord's table so needful. Here is where you refocused your life. Here is where you reset your priorities. Here is where you remember the greatest manifestation of love that divine wisdom could invent. Christ's body broken for you. Christ's blood shed for you. The two things taken together combined to say, God is for you. So we've considered what is, to be sure, an abbreviated answer to the question, what things? What should we say to these things? And we've seen how the these things of our text lead to the conclusion that God is for us, Let's move on to consider next the evidence that leads Paul to that conclusion. The evidence that leads to the conclusion that God is for us. He is for us, Paul writes. And in a sense, this is what we say to these things. God is for us. And in the verses that follow, Paul will supply the proof of that conclusion. God is for us. How do we know that? Well, for one thing, he spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Doesn't that proclaim to you that God must be for you? He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for you. 
Do you see how Paul approaches that matter negatively and positively in that statement? Negatively stated, he spared not his son, his own son. Though his own son would pray to him that if it be possible, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, that cup would not pass. Christ had to, and thankfully did, go forward to accomplish his Father's will. In a sense, his Father could not spare him if his Son was to represent us. Such action on the part of the Father toward his Son shows us that God will not be partial to anyone. If he wouldn't be partial to his own son to spare him, do Christ rejectors think he'll somehow be partial to them? So that's the issue negatively stated. He spared not his own son. On the other side of the issue, and positively stated, his father delivered him up for us all. He spared him not, but delivered him up. You see the negative and the positive aspect to that? He delivered him up to the cross. He delivered him up to his wrath. He delivered him up to the condemnation that his justice called for. And he did this for us all. Could anything prove with greater clarity and fullness that God must be for us? Further proof that he's for us is found in the fact that he's made us immune from any charge that could be brought against us. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Paul writes in verse 31, or 33 rather. Now, in our own judicial system, and I suppose this is true of just about any judicial system in this world, court cases may be appealed to higher courts all the way up to the Supreme Court. But once the Supreme Court has made a ruling, there is no place for a lower court to overrule that decision. Decisions can be sustained or overturned by higher courts, but they can't move in the opposite direction to lower courts. So in the matter of our justification, our case, you could argue, has made its way not simply to any earthly panel of judges, be they ever so supreme. Our case has made its way to the highest court in the universe, which is the court of God himself, and he has pronounced sentence on the followers of his Son, they're justified. And the fact that such a sentence has been made by such a high court, indeed by the ultimate highest court, the follower of Christ is free from any charge of the devil, though he be the Christian's constant accuser. There is no force in heaven, earth, or hell then that can bring any charge against God's elect. When Paul says, it is God that justifieth, he's saying in effect that the judge of all the universe has ruled and has ruled in favor of his son and to all those that are joined to his son.
they're justified. So he, who is he that condemneth? Paul then wants to know. Who is he that thinks he can overrule God's verdict? God's verdict has been pronounced. And we should note that God's verdict is not an arbitrary sentence. God goes on to state the basis for his ruling that the Christian is justified. It is Christ that died. Paul writes in verse 34, Yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Here's how we know God is for us then. His Son died for us, having satisfied divine justice for us. And He rose for us, which means that He was declared to be the Son of God with power, and that His sacrifice was accepted. And now He's seated at the right hand of God. Could any charge against us prevail before God when God's own Son who died for us, is seated right there at his right hand. And he's not only seated at his Father's right hand, but Paul adds, he also maketh intercession for us. He doesn't simply sit at his Father's right hand in some relaxed kind of posture. No, he is busily engaged in the activity of interceding for his people, He calls on his Father to forgive them, and he calls on his Father to bless them with every blessing that was purchased by the Son in the shedding of his blood. So the evidence that Christ is for his people is overwhelming and compelling. He died for us. He rose for us. He's at the right hand of God, his Father, for us. He intercedes for us at his Father's right hand. Oh, what a blessing to have such an advocate who has an all-prevailing plea, even his shed blood. And this advocate is qualified to represent us because as a man, he is one of us. And as our high priest, he is one with us. What shall we say then to these things? Oh, let's endeavor before we partake of these elements to answer the question. That's my third and final point, the answer to the question. What shall we then say to these things? As I said earlier in my introduction, there is a sense in which we say nothing, but we stand still in awe of all that Christ has done for us. I said earlier that the communion table does call us to a certain kind of stillness. In the words of the hymn writer, you could say, I stand, or in our case, I sit even in the presence, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. So we stand in solemn humility and in humble praise with thanksgiving as we gaze at these communion elements and we see beyond them to what they point to in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
Charles Hodge, in his commentary on Romans, gives a good devotional statement on the meaning of our text. What shall we then say to these things? Listen to what Hodge writes. What then shall we say in response to this? That is, what is the inference from what has already been said? If God is for us, if he has delivered us from the law of sin and death, if he has renewed us by his spirit who dwells in us, if he recognizes us as his children and his heirs and has predestined us to holiness and glory, who can be against us? If God's love has led to all the blessings which have just been specified, what have we to fear for the future? He who did not spare his own son will freely give us all things. And I love the word freely there. When the blessings of God come, that's how they come. They come freely. They don't come because you merit them. They don't come because you've finally arrived at a level uh, that demands them. No, they come freely. And the reason they come freely is because they come based on the merit of another who has already earned them. He freely gives us all things. This verse shows clearly what has been the Apostle's purpose from the beginning of the chapter. He wished to demonstrate that for those who accept the plan of salvation which he taught, that is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no reason for apprehension. Their final salvation is guaranteed. The conclusion of the chapter is a recapitulation of all Paul's former arguments, or rather the reduction of them to one which includes them all in their fullest meaning, God is for us. He, as our judge, is satisfied. As our Father, he loves us. As the supreme and almighty controller of events, who works all things after the counsel of his own will, he has determined to save us. And as that being whose love is as unchanging as it is infinite, he allows nothing to separate his children from himself. Oh, may we come to the Lord's table this morning with full assurance in our hearts, our God is for us. What shall we say then to these things? Oh, let's stand in marvel and awe that they're true. May these communion elements this morning then lead us to glory in Christ. May we sit in reverence before him as we contemplate how blessed we are and how expensive and precious those blessings are. Let's all pray before we distribute the elements. Let's pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence this morning around thy table, we thank thee that our God is for us. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for our doubts. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for misreading the providential dealings of God in our lives, being tempted to think that God may not love me, if he doesn't give me this, that, or the other thing. 
Oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us to see things from an eternal perspective. And may we indeed know beyond all doubt that God is indeed with us and for us, having given his Son for us. Oh, may we be drawn to him this morning in our remembrance of him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.